All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody. It's Manoush. Welcome to a very special note to self. I am so excited because we are finally ready to tell you about our latest project. All right, but first, like, a little preamble here, right? As you may know, or if you're new, maybe you don't know, and welcome to Note to Self. On this show, what we do is we explore all kinds of ways that our lives are changing because of technology and the Internet. Changing how we think, how we work, how we fall in love. Sometimes those changes are scary. Hello, politics. Um, But other times, they can utterly upend how society functions in a good way. And this week, everybody, I am so energized by our latest exploration. For the past few months, I've been paying very close attention, as have many people, to the way that the world has been changing for women, particularly in the virtual world. A lot has happened. It's the Me Too movement. Time's up. It has become normal for women to speak up, to use their voice for whatever issue or cause that they're thinking about. Yes, women have been doing that for a long time, but not on such a massive, consistent scale. We are seeing a profound shift in our culture that is affecting how many of us interact online and off. And it must be said that women are not just owning their voices, but also their image. Some with the power of the sexy selfie, others without posting a single photo of themselves. And there's no judgment here, to be clear. But it's interesting and worth talking about because it is influencing everyone. Here's how the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine's The Cut, Stella Bugby, puts it. There used to be a very small number of people who controlled who got to say what, and now we can all just say what we're thinking and we can learn about each other. And it's, I find it an amazing time to be alive. You're going to be hearing more from Stella and her excellent writers and editors at New York Magazine's The Cut because we have partnered with them for this series. Every day next week, I talk to an extremely badass woman about how she is using her voice, owning her image, and bending the internet to her will. So we have decided to call this series No Filter, Women Owning It Online. Because these women don't give any f***s. Okay, I still give enough f***s to bleep the word in case your kids are listening, but you get the point. And since this series has so much to do with the visual imagery of women online, our friends at New York Magazine's The Cut have done beautiful, gorgeous portrait photographs of the women that I spoke to. You can see those at thecut.com slash nofilter. Some of the women that I talked to you may have heard of, some maybe not. But that might just be because you're too old 
nor too young. No, I'm just kidding. We're all fine. And we have so much to learn from each other, no matter what age we are. So here is a little more of a taste of what we're going to dive into. We start with 21-year-old Lele Pons. That doesn't ring a bell? You must not be that into YouTube or Instagram. Because she is huge on there. Huge. It took me a while. People just don't understand. Like, hey, why is it that this girl gets so many views more than other people? It's because I have built a brand. It's because I have been in this for five years and I have edited my life away. I, I know the game. I know how to do it. I'm very proud of who I am. I, I When people see me, they're like, Lele. like they, they feel like they know me because I only portray how I am. Lele's influence is very real and very intentional. She is super open about how she constructs the reality she wants, and she is fascinating. So after Lele, day two is Trace Lissette. Trace is in her late 30s, and let's just say that constructing her identity has been a lifelong challenge. My generation of, of trans women from New York, we were just kind of all in the struggle together. You would just kind of learn the ropes through this underground railroad of trans women who have existed in a society that didn't make space for them for decades. Trace has had a lot of recent success. She plays Shay on the show Transparent, but she's also one of the reasons why the star, Jeffrey Tambor, won't be returning to the show. It was uh, really painful and um, one of the hardest things I've ever had to take on in my life but not the hardest thing I've ever been through. I think that the walk of life I come from is not for the faint of heart. Advocating for myself in that way publicly, it forever changed me. Just as political is the work of Amy Sherald. She is day three. Amy just painted Michelle Obama's official portrait, and boy, did she get some blowback. But Amy doesn't give a crap. I think people really wanted a glamour shot of her. And I'm like, that's not who showed up at this sitting. And it wasn't the Michelle Obama that we all adore and look up to. And not saying she's not that, but when she's not on television, she's a different person. Does that make sense? Not like different, different, but like you don't have to be on. Finding a space where we don't have to be on, that's part of what we're aiming for in this series, how to create that place, how to protect it, how to be private if you so choose. Kind of like CNN war correspondent turned anchor Christian Amanpour does. She's day four. I have a thing about social media. I don't want to be the story or I don't want to be the person who gets a flood of weird trolling and I don't know what else. I just, it's not my thing. And I feel that I've remained psychologically mentally, spiritually, and physically healthy by not really engaging on that level on social media. I hope I engage enough that people know who I am and where I come from, but I don't feel that I need to, you know, let it all hang out. Christian's show has replaced The Charlie Rose Show on PBS. Another Me Too moment right there. And we wrap up our series with the queen of the deconstructed image, the artist Barbara Kruger. You know her art, trust me. It's those black and white photographs with red bars across them with white text, like a woman's face that then has your body is a battleground across it. It's a famous one. 
Barbara's actually not a fan of social media, in part because she understands the power of pithy messaging. You like me. You really like me. How many likes do you have? <laughs> you friend me. You know, it, haters, lovers, Instagram posts. You look gorgeous. I love it. I love your hair today. Your bod looks great. It makes people feel good. Likes. But it's an observation because we all need likes. We all have ego constructions. There's nothing evil or bad about that. Maybe the battleground for women is Instagram now. We will discuss. Every day next week, a new interview with one of these geniuses with analysis, both fashion analysis and political analysis, from writers at New York Magazine's The Cut. Okay, but stick around, because when we come back, Erica Joy Baker. She's a black woman, a software engineer, and she explains what it actually means when it's mostly bros who build the platforms that we women use to express ourselves. Stick around. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. Now listen, before we launch into this wonderful week of discussing how women talk and perform and create their own images online, we wanted to take a little time to lay the groundwork for these conversations. All those apps and platforms and browsers that we use to present ourselves, somebody has to build them, right? Does it matter who? You bet it does. If it's a bunch of white guys building the platform that women are using to portray themselves to the world, shouldn't women have some say in how those platforms get built and how they work? Here to explain why this really matters is Erica Joy Baker. She helped build some of the things you may have already used multiple times today. She was a software engineer at Google and Slack. Now she's at Patreon. But really, it was her experience back at Google that made her realize why being one of a handful, or oftentimes the only black female engineer at a tech company, is just not a good thing for any of us. I learned about Erica through a great post she wrote on Medium and a TEDx talk she gave a little while back. So let's start by talking about this concept or this term that I really love, the the anxiety gap. What is it and how yeah. did you come up with it? Right. So um, I actually came up with it talking to the folks at TED because, like, I was just generally like, chatting with them about, like, what my life is like, what it's like to be a woman in tech, a black woman in tech, and how I have to deal with different troubles, I guess, in the workplace before I can think about my job. And so that's what the anxiety gap is. People from underrepresented groups, marginalized people, have to deal with like sexism and racism before they can do their actual job. And so instead of like achieving at their best capability, they're spending time and energy and resources on like figuring out who like the next person is that's going to like try to undermine them because they're a woman or who's going to say something racist because they are a person of color. There was one um, line that you had in a Medium post from 2014. You're like, mm-hmm. I was on a team in New York and once again, I was the only black woman. I did what I thought I had to do to survive in the environment. I once again donned the uniform to fit in jeans, unisex t-shirt, Timbuktu messenger bag. I stayed late playing multiplayer battlefield. <laughs> It just cracked me up. 
<laughs> Tell me yeah. about that time and what that's like. Is it a putting on a costume or is it genuine? Like, what do you mean? It's more putting on a persona, right? Like, it is doing what you have to do to fit in with this group of people so that they don't exclude you, right? Because that feeling of being excluded is damaging. And not just to your emotional self, but also to like your work, right? If you are not part of this group, the way teams work, especially in tech, if you're not part of the team, you don't get the same opportunities. You don't get the same promotions, right? Like people think about like, oh, I remember chatting with him at a bar over drinks about this thing. Because of that, he'll be a perfect person for this new project coming up, right? And so if you're not in those places, you don't get the same opportunities. And that's why you have to put on like that uniform and put on that personality and go to Beer gardens when you don't like beer, that was literally me. Like I would go out to beer gardens with my coworkers and drink water. And for a long time, I didn't realize what damage it was doing to me. But as soon as I realized it, I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. When, how and when did you realize? Like, what is that moment that happened? So I want to say it was October 2014. I went to the Grace Hopper Conference for a celebration of women in computing. And I stood up in one of the meetings that we had. It was the reverse allies panel where instead of like women hearing men tell us what we needed to do to survive and get ahead in the tech industry, which is not what needed to happen, they then flipped it around and had a panel where women could tell these men from, you know, the top of the industry what their experiences were. And I said, you know, all I want to do is write code, but I don't ever get that opportunity. At that point, I was feeling really not great about working at Google, but there was a woman in there who managed one of the teams, and she says, you can come write code on my team. And so I did that. And around that time, I had also started going to therapy, and that is what, like, sort of solidified how I felt at Google. And you had to go back to Google, though. Like, was there backlash? There wasn't any backlash. There was a lot of support. But granted, on the flip side, there are a lot of people who just like were skeptical and like, Google is great. I don't know what problem you had and that sort of thing. Mm. Typically, white dudes would say that, which was unsurprising. Google is a great place for them. Did Google executives come to you and say, you know, what can we do to have you stay? And- oh, absolutely not. <laughs> that really? idea is so funny. Yo, gosh, no. I never heard word one from anybody in leadership until after I left Google. Well, that's messed up, isn't it? I mean, it's their problem. They missed an opportunity there, and that sucks for them. They missed out on the chance to have me tell them how Google could be better, and that's their loss. It is not mine. I would argue that it's all of our loss. You know, it's a company that I use every single day, and I want it to be useful to every kind of person in the entire world as it claims to be. And and that. Mm, But it's not. It's not built for every person in the world because it's not built by people who represent every person in the world, right? Like, you remember when they had that whole kerfluffle with the pictures of Black people being tagged as gorillas? Oh, yeah, we did a whole episode on it, totally. Yeah, right. So had they had people who represented everybody in the world in their QA testing, they would have found that out. They would have known. But because they don't, because the number of Black people at Google is still 2%, they had no idea. Like, I had conversations there where people would tell me that Black people weren't as smart as white people, like we were biologically not as smart, or we were biologically more prone to violence, right? Those are things that people (laughs) would say. Are you serious? Yeah, Those emails still exist at Google right now. It happens all the time at Google. It is really hilarious to me 
the way people responded to James Damore mm. just because— Can we just like, remind he, us all who James Damore is? He's the individual who <laughs> wrote— uh, I'm being really here. I'll do it. Um, I'll do it because it, I'm not going to make you say it. He's the former Google engineer who wrote this diatribe saying that women were not biologically competent of creating tech that works. Yep, that's a good summary. I would have maybe have had more colorful words for him, but that's Fair a enough. good summary of what he did. <laughs> um, but when that came out, I was just like, how is anybody surprised? I have been talking about this for a long time about how this is common at Google. I'm guessing you didn't sign a non-disparagement clause when you left. <laughs> no. they. <laughs> this is how much they underestimate Black women, I guess. Like, I don't think they thought that I could ever say anything that would be... What? Really? You think that they just, yeah. like, it didn't occur to them that you would go and talk about this? Probably not, no. Because they don't see me as having power. and Or maybe they do now, but they didn't then. You just said something very interesting. You said, but maybe they mm -hmm. do now. Maybe they see that I have power now. What has changed since you quit in 2014? For me as a person, as a public voice, like a lot of people, you know, reached out to me and said how important that was for them, how much it resonated for them, how grateful they were that I was speaking up and telling the story that they couldn't tell because they didn't feel safe to do it. Right. And so that made me feel like I needed to keep telling that story. My path got really interesting because now I get to talk to you when I'm really telling a story that is everyone's story, right? And being in the tech industry to watch the changes right now, it's very interesting because honestly, I don't feel like there's a lot happening. I feel like there's a lot of talk. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people are being more aware of the challenges women and people of color face and people from other underrepresented groups. But I don't know that people are ready to do what needs to be done to fix it, right? Like, I think people are happy to talk about it and maybe do like an unconscious bias training here or there and maybe give some money to an organization like Code 2040 or Black Girls Code, which, P.S., they should be giving their money to. Please give all your money to those organizations. But like, they do those things, but then stop there. Mm. You'll know it's real when you see them actively taking steps to like reduce their power and saying, I'm going to give my bonus to XYZ group or anything that might cost them some sort of money, power, time, energy, effort. If you get, see them making real sacrifices to improve it, I think, okay, they're really about it and something's going to happen. But I just don't see that coming from anyone in the tech industry right now. I read somewhere, and correct me if this is wrong, that you don't like being called a strong woman. Is that true? I don't. True. I feel like there's a lot tied up with that, especially for Black women. You know, that whole, like, Black women are superheroes, and there's a lot of, like, beliefs that Black people in general can take more pain than non-Black people, and that we are more powerful and superhuman strength that, you know, like, when Darren Wilson described Mike Brown, he was like, he was a monster coming at me when really Mike Brown was, like, 18-year-old kid, right? Mm -hmm. It feeds into that. And so, like, I don't like being called strong. I am resilient, strong like implies nothing hurts me and that's not true that's not human right like things hurt but we recover from them so when you talk to girls or young women at organizations like black girls code or girls develop it what do you tell them to be what advice do you give them in terms of who they represent themselves to be online and mm -hmm. and just IRL I tell them to not make themselves small and to not be who people want them to be and show up at your workplace as yourself. And I tell them that's going to be hard. 
for some reason in this society and online and everywhere, we are really just dedicated to like presenting ourselves in this perfect form. And there's no such thing as perfect, but there is a such thing as human, right? And we should be trying hard to project to everybody, you know, but especially young women, that it is okay to be a human being, that you do not have to be perfect. Because trying to achieve this like perfect image will drive you crazy, literally. It will make you literally crazy. I mean, literally, it will mess with your head. And so we should make it feel safe and okay for young people to show up online as their full selves, as people who don't always do the right thing, that aren't always perfect. I look forward to when we have someone in the White House who has, at some point or another, taken a nude photo of themselves and sent it to someone else, right? Like, (laughs) Because that's a normal thing that people do. I want people to be able to feel safe being not perfect. Mm. Erica Joy Baker, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. Making space for imperfections. Erica Joy Baker. And by the way, we reached out to Google to see if they wanted to respond to anything that Erica had to say, and we did not hear back from them in time for this podcast. Are you hearing this and you're like, yes, this is resonating? Well, we want to hear from you. Tell us, how has the internet messed with your head? And have you messed back? Go to note2selfradio.org slash share. This is new, yeah. To record a message, or as always, you can just record it on your phone and email us at note2self at wnyc.org. You can also drop us a line on Twitter at note2self or Facebook, wherever. But, you know, the voice memo thing, it's powerful. I mean, here's an example of one voice memo we got already. I was doing this weird thing of, like, mimicking people's Instagram post styles. And one of my friends saw a post of mine where I was in a pastel shirt, and I only wear black, holding a book and, like, highlighting a passage with just the lower part of my face in the frame, like I was some literary goddess. So for me to try and do this sort of, like, pretentious, hard turn shocked a lot of my friends, who then sort of brought me down to earth. And it felt ridiculous that at 32, I could have such a crisis of self-understanding based off of three 24-year-olds that I follow on Instagram. So I uh, I took a break and um, I'm back on it now, but it's mostly just Doritos and corn dogs and Drake lyrics again. Thank God. Yeah, go record something. Okay, but wait, also, you're going to see that there's a bonus episode in your feed today. Uh, we made friends with somebody else, another team of women. Actually, they're called Generation Women. This is a live storytelling event featuring women across a range of ages speaking on a theme. I actually did the Generation Women show a couple months back. I loved it so, so much that I wanted to bring them to WNYC to record a show with us. And so the theme for the event that we did together was your digital revolution. It was perfect, right? So you hear from one woman, an art appraiser in her 70s. She talks about her online dating escapades. I'll confess that over the past several years, I've shopped. And yes, I think of it as shopping on most of the dating apps. (laughs) 
not Tinder. All of the stories that these women tell on stage are touching and hilarious and thought-provoking. So please enjoy that extra episode down your feed. And also, I just want to say a special thank you to Georgia Clark, the creator of Generation Women, for inspiring us with her cross-generational approach. For now, the Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Cunane, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Justine Daum, Keegan Zima, Ernie Indradat, and Anya Zushik for their help producing this special series. No filter. Oh, and Hannes Brown, he's the best. He, of course, composed the music for the series. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi. See you next.